Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There are those who have a passion for what it is they're doing. They've got a widget that they are convinced is better than anybody else's widget. And they have a real passion for getting it into the marketplace. And then there's a group of entrepreneurs who have a widget that they think will make them rich quick. That group. The people who are in it for the money, who think they're going to get rich quick, almost never succeed. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and through a recommendation of one of my coaches, Matt Halloran, he said, you need to get Rick Edelman on the show. And I, I went and did a little bit of research and Matt was absolutely right. I wanted to bring Rick in. He's done some amazing things. He's had an exit. He's, I don't know if he's still on the board. I know there's some transitions happening. And so he's gone through all the steps, ladies and gentlemen, of making the exits that we talk about in our framework. And so Rick, welcome in. Aren't you up in like Virginia, Northern Virginia or something like that? Most of the time, yes. We're outside DC. We also have an apartment in New York and I've uh, just built a home in Arizona. So we're where I am depends on, you know, our mood of the moment. Wow. Wow. So not only that, but he he's living in the most premium real estate in the country. So this is phenomenal. Rick, you know, this show is about people who've had exits. And, you know, exits can be something as simple as leaving corporate America and starting your own thing to building a massive company and then building a portfolio of companies and then becoming a philanthropist and so on and so forth. And so the first place I love to go is, did you ever go into corporate? Like, did you have a like job, like a nine to five at any point? I did straight out of college. That was the first thing that I did. I left college 1980, immediately went to Washington, D.C. My intent was to work on Capitol Hill. In college, I was interning for a congressman. And so my intent was to work on the Hill, but I quickly didn't like that. I didn't like anything about what was going on in you know DC politics and, and the halls of Congress. But I love DC. So I stayed and I went and became the director of communications for a nonprofit in the healthcare field and did that for several years, moved into pure journalism and writing after that, and and then entered the field as a financial advisor. Wow. 
So did you have some type of exit plan when you left that first job? Most people like me, right? I, I just burnt the boats. I left. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have any income for a year. I was just figuring it out. Did you have a structured path to make that transition? No, my wife and I had a very hectic, eclectic 20s. I hated my 20s. It was, you know, at one point we counted between the two of us, we had nine W-2s in a single year. At one, we moved, I think, six times in four years at one point. And we were, we were bouncing all over the place, trying to figure ourselves out. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? College, we discovered, prepared us very well with skill sets but it wasn't really good at preparing you for a future. And I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My parents were small business owners, very successful. And so entrepreneurship was a second nature to me. And the notion of college is all designed about teaching you how to get a job. And getting a job was just something I was never, I never had a job in high school. I created businesses in high school. My first business was running a casino in in elementary school. My second business was a window washing company I started when I was 16. So I never went to work in a fast food joint and because that's what my parents taught me to do. That's what they did. And so when I was in my 20s, we were, you know, I got a job because I thought that's what you're supposed to do with a college degree. And after a couple of years, realized that working for somebody else and having them dictate your and control your life economically And looking ahead at the people who were 20 years ahead of me in my career and that they were only making twice as much as I was making. I'm like, you mean I got to wait till I'm in my 40s to be making that kind of money? I want to be making that now. So I left that, went into pure journalism, which was the background of my degree. And that was more entrepreneurial as a writer because writers have a lot more flexibility and freedom to work on their stories and so on. But that too was, was limiting, but it was in my writing that I became introduced to the financial services industry. I had never taken a business course in college. I brag about that, frankly. I'm a pretty rare financial advisor who didn't have a business class. No economics courses, no finance, no accounting. And in the end, I think that really helped me. I didn't get brainwashed by, by business school. And so as a writer, I was working in the, in the healthcare field, but my publisher owned some financial magazines and asked me to help out on some stories there. And that's when I began writing about money. I was interviewing CFOs and money managers and investment advisors, and I was beginning to learn about this big world of of personal finance and money. And that's when my wife and I realized, you know, gee, we're in our 20s. We're like every other young set of newlyweds. We have aspirations. We want to buy a home one day. And I'm learning about this thing about money and investments. So we ought to go talk to someone who can give us advice on how to buy a home. So I went to a financial advisor and a couple of interesting things happened. First, the advisor refused to meet with my wife, only met with me, which, which pissed her off to no end. And understandably so. I mean, that's how sexist this guy was. Second, when we did meet with the advisor, the advice that he gave me for us to be able to buy a house was to lie on our mortgage application to qualify. Instead of telling us what he should have told us, you can't afford a house you're not ready to buy. He said, Mm -hmm. well, in order for you to get the loan, you're going to have to lie on your mortgage application. In other words, he said, commit a felony. That was so infuriating. Oh my God. It was so infuriating to Gene and me that we were just flabbergasted. And we, and we sat back and we said, if this is the quality of advice that advisors are giving their clients and look at the money that he's getting paid. To do it, he charged me $1,500. This is in 1984. That was a heck of a lot of money back then, especially for a young couple who didn't have much money. And we realized that if he's making this kind of money, given this kind of advice, how much money might an advisor be able to earn if you actually gave advice that helped people? 
And that was the impetus. He made us so mad. We said, you know what? We're going to learn how to do this ourselves. And then we're going to teach others what they, what we've learned so that they can avoid the experience that we've just had. And so I quit my job as a journalist. Jean quit her job. She went to work for Payne Weber, learning the back office of the of a brokerage industry to figure out the operations and processing and trading. I went and studied for my securities exams to be able to get licensed so that I could give advice to clients. And off we went. We founded our fledgling little financial planning shop in 1986, and we were off and running. Wow. So when you started, were you chief everything officer? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just Gene and me. We had no income. We had no clients. We had no assets under management. We were young. We had no experience in the field. We were living in a town you know, outside of the D.C. area that we didn't grow up in. We both went to college together in New Jersey. Our families are from New Jersey. Our friends and our social network are in New Jersey. We're now living in a town where we've only been in town for a few years. We don't really know anybody. We don't have any money. We don't have any assets. We don't have a network. We were trying to convince people to become clients. And the people we're trying to convince are people who are twice our age, you know, people in their 50s and 60s who have assets, who have money to invest. So how do I convince somebody twice my age to give their life savings to someone half their age who has no experience, no clients, no credentials to justify why they should make that decision? And that was, you know, the world we began in. So it was a really uh, challenging effort. And we were, yeah, I was the CEO and chief bottle washer, you know, as, as, as in any small startup business. So how did you convince them to place the capital with you? Because if I read correctly, like you had a ton of assets under management when you exited the company. Well, yeah, what we did was we recognized two very basic things that I think have eluded most of the industry, in fact, even persists today, 40 years later. First is that we recognize that there were a lot of people like us, young people, newly married, often with young children, trying to secure their place in life, trying to buy a home, trying to save for college for their children, caring for aging parents, and in the middle of that, trying to save for their own future retirement security. And these folks don't have a lot of money. They're in their 20s, 30s, and they're not making a lot of money. They don't have a lot of money. And therefore, they can't get the attention of Wall Street because financial advisors tend to only want to work with rich people. If you've got a million dollars, happy to help you. I'm real happy to help a rich person get richer. Mm -hmm. And a million dollar minimum is, a, is an extremely common requirement among financial advisors. Some firms like Goldman Sachs, it's 25 million before they'll talk mm -hmm. to you. So Wall Street is really good at helping the top 1% stay there and not really good at helping the 99% get there. And so Gene and I said, instead of trying to serve wealthy people who I'm going to have a struggle convincing to hire me instead of Goldman, why don't we go to people who are like us? Let's go to our peer group. We're in our 20s. Let's go to other people in their 20s. Let's talk to young parents who are struggling with raising children, who are not getting the services of advisors. And so we realized two things. Number one, let's talk to people who don't have access to advice. Number two, let's demonstrate that we do have the skills and knowledge to be able to assist them. And that means we have to totally turn the business model on its head. You've heard the <laughs> adage, Jerome, all the time. It's not what you know, but who you know. Uh -huh. you know we've heard that all the time. That, that is utter nonsense. It's not what you know. It's who knows you. In other words, I realized that if I were to cold call 
and give you a 30-second spiel, that's just a sales pitch. And everybody hates cold callers. But if I can get in front of you for an hour and talk with you one-on-one about your life and about your circumstance and let you realize I understand what you're dealing with and what you're going through, and I have information and tools that are available that can help you accomplish your goals that are in your best interest, I think that might be something you would be interested in listening to. So what we did was I went to elementary school PTAs and I invited the PTA group to let me come into their next meeting and do a seminar on college planning for their children. And the PTA groups all said the same thing. Why do you want to talk to us? Our kids are, you know, six, 18 years old. Go to the high school PTAs. Those are the parents who care about college. And I had to explain to them, you can't wait till the kid is 16 to save for college. You got to start saving when the kid is six. You need time to make this work. So they all agreed. And we ended up doing these seminars for pretty much every PTA group in the Washington, D.C. area over the next several years. They'd bring in the parents to their meeting, 40, you know, 50 couples. And at the end of their meeting, those who felt like hanging around would listen to, to me for an hour, talk about the need to save for college and how to save for college and how you can do this with $25 a month, very inexpensively, very affordably, very low cost using mutual funds, which were very new back in the 1980s. People don't realize, but in 1986, there were only 400 mutual funds in the country. Today, there are 20,000 mutual funds and ETFs, but these were still a very new vehicle back in the 1980s and, and people were not familiar with them. So I was able to share news and information that people found surprising and very interesting and helpful. And so word spread. People would attend the seminar and they liked what they heard. And many of them would come on and say, you know, can we become your client? We don't have much money. And I was like, fine, I don't care if you don't have any money. You know, we didn't have an account minimum. As long as you were willing to be our client and follow the advice we would offer, we're happy to help you. And so that's how we began to build our business. And word spread about what we were doing. I got invited onto the radio as a guest. That interview on WMAL was extremely good. I was supposed to be on the air for 15 minutes. The host kept me on the air for a full hour and then invited uh-huh. me back. I became a regular monthly guest on the, on the station. They told me I was generating more phone calls into the station than any other guest they'd ever had. And eventually they offered me my own show, which I then hosted for 32 years. And I became the longest running nationally syndicated talk show host on personal finance and named to the Talkers Magazine top 100 most important radio talk show hosts in the country. That led to my getting television series on public television and other cable news stations, a regular on CNN and Fox. And I was on Oprah five times and on The View and on CBS Evening News, CBS Good Morning and Good Morning America. And I ended up writing 12 books on personal finance. I'm the number one best-selling author in the personal finance space. My most recent book, The Truth About Crypto, debuted at number one on Amazon last year. And along the way, we kept growing the company as more and more consumers began hearing about us. And we eventually got to the point where, you know, over a 40-year period, we built the company to the largest investment advisory financial planning firm in the country, serving now 1.4 million households managing $300 billion in assets. We are ranked the number one firm in the nation by Consumer Reports for quality, beating out every Wall Street firm in the country. Barron's has ranked me the number one independent advisor in the nation three times. My firm is ranked the number one firm in the country 
And I've been named the most influential financial advisor in the nation by RAA Biz, Investment News, Financial Planning, Investment Advisor. So it's been, it's been quite a ride. Woo! You said 300 billion? Yeah. 1.4 million? Yeah. I know most advisors are only looking to get 400 people to serve. Well, you know, so, it's interesting. The average advisor has about $100 million in assets. The very biggest firms in the nation might have a billion in assets or a few billion. My firm generates a billion dollars in new assets per month. So we generate more assets in a month than most advisors have in total. So we're, and it's because consumers like the message. They, they appreciate our client first approach that we are a fiduciary, we're serving their best interest, that we are giving them advice that makes common sense, that is easily understood, easy to implement, easy to maintain, that's low cost, that is designed to help them achieve their goals. And what we've discovered is that there aren't very many organizations that really do that to the extent that we do. This is wild. So you build this monstrosity. I assume that it wasn't just you and Gene at the yeah, end of the road. Yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah, you're right, Jerome. Pretty quickly, it grew beyond us. Demand for our services was so great that it, 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 we couldn't handle it. And so we began, we had to make a simple decision. Do we turn business away? Do we turn clients away? Do we turn people away? People who are calling us asking for our help, do we turn them away because it, we're too busy, which is too rude, we felt. And yet I find that's what most advisors do. Most advisors have, as you pointed out, only a couple of hundred clients and they shut the doors. There's a coach, a very famous, well-known coach in the financial planning field who advises his advisor clients that every year fire, he says, your bottom 20% of your business. The 20% of your clients who are generating the lowest revenue to you, fire them and replace them with bigger clients who will pay you more money. To me, that is incredibly obnoxious and rude and, and does not do a service to America. And so Gene and I said, we're not going to turn anybody away. If we don't have the capacity to help them, we'll increase our capacity. And so we began to hire other advisors and other staff to allow us to always say, yes, if you're willing to become our client, we will be willing to serve you and we'll do whatever it takes internally to be able to make that happen. And we'll stop growing when the demand for our services stops. Well, you know, 37 years later, the, the demand has never stopped. And so the growth continues. So we now have uh, at Edelman Financial, they, they've got now 400 plus advisors and 175 offices, 1,500 employees across the country. And we're now the largest advice provider for 401k plans in the U.S., about a third of the Fortune 500 are clients. Uh, and so it's a very big organization and, and it's been very gratifying. We've been able to help a, a, a huge amount of people who otherwise would not have been able to find the advice that they've needed. Because most financial planning firms, most investment advisory firms, most of the wirehouses and, and big investment banks won't serve the 99%. That persists even today. It's improved a lot. A lot of firms are getting a lot better at serving lower net worth and lower income households, but most are still not there. So we're, we're glad that we've paved the way. It's very exciting. It's also good to see that there's a lot more financial education out there. Everybody knows what a mutual fund is today. Many people are in participating in the personal finance environment who didn't 40 years ago. So we're in a lot better shape as a country, but there's still a huge way to go. There remains a massive wealth gap in America. Uh, there's a wealth gap due to race. There's a wealth gap due to age. There's a wealth gap due to incomes. So we have a, a, a lot of problems, but we are clearly making progress. And 
it's been a real honor to be part of it over the past four decades. So at any point, did you get out of the day-to-day operations? Yes, that was a natural inevitability. One of the problems of building a large organization, as soon as you begin to hire people, you have to let them do the job that you hired them to do. And the job you're hiring them to do is the job you no longer have the time to do, which means the stuff I was doing, I loved to do. I loved meeting with clients and I loved preparing financial plans and I loved presenting those plans. I loved building the investment portfolio and I loved doing the, the trading and I loved the portfolio analysis and I loved writing about it. So I produced my own newsletter and I loved talking about it with our seminars and radio and TV. But as you get bigger and bigger, you realize I don't have the time for all of this anymore. I need to hire another financial advisor to do this. I need to hire a trading desk. I need to hire I need to hire compliance staff. I need to hire writers. I need to hire producers. I need to hire graphic designers. I used to do all those jobs or Gene did all those jobs and we had to hire other people to do them for us. And it meant I had to give up some of the things I enjoyed doing. Like I love layout and design. So I love doing the layout of my newsletter after I would write it, but it's too time consuming. And I found the company was better served by having other people do that. So I could focus on things that only I could do such as produce the radio show or design the strategy for the company. And so you have no choice but to hire other people and walk away from the jobs that you used to do, even though you used to love doing them, because it's better for the business, it's better for the client, it's better for the outcome. And that's a challenge. That's a struggle I have learned that many entrepreneurs have. They're afraid to let go. They don't like to let go. And they end up micromanaging. They hire someone, but then they stand on their head looking over their shoulder saying, don't do it that way, do it this way. And that creates a terrible work environment. It creates frustration. It gets in everybody's way and it never works. And so the the business environment that Gene and I created was really very simple. We're going to teach you the mission. We're going to give you the tools so that you can achieve the mission. And then we're going to get out of your way. And if you have a problem, let me know about it. Other than that, I'll see you when you're done. And this freedom that we gave our team was something that they absolutely loved because it allowed them to spread their wings. It allowed them to demonstrate their skills and talents. It allowed them to use their creativity to come up with ideas and processes and solutions that I never would have thought of. And they not only had tremendous degree of success, they had a huge degree of job satisfaction. And the result of all of that is that nobody ever quit their job. In our industry, the turnover rate is about 25% a year. In our firm, it's less than 5%. Nobody would ever leave our firm because they were enjoying their jobs so much. In, in our, among our financial advisors, in most firms, there's about a 30% turnover rate of financial advisors. You go to Merrill Lynch, you know, you go to Wells Fargo, the big firms, about 20 or 30% of their advisors quit every year. In my organization, throughout my entire 30-year career, when I was running Edelman Financial, not a single financial advisor ever left to go to another wow. firm. We had a few we fired. We had a couple who passed away unfortunately, but nobody ever left to go to a competitor because we were providing them the best environment that the industry had to offer and they knew it. And it was just a a wonderful environment. And we knew that by having happy staff who are doing the best they can do, the client becomes the winner because the client is the beneficiary of all that great work that's happening inside the organization. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. 
they often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So you get out of the day-to-day. Do you establish a board or do you sell, do your first exit of the company first? The first thing we do is build an internal management team. So we built our own C-suite. We built a team of my senior executives, about 10 people who ran each of the separate divisions of the company, you know, the operations, trading, compliance, HR, and technology, and so on. And of course, management and supervision of the planners and of the staff. Then you hire second level management and so on. As the company grows, you just increase the org chart and the family tree as needed. But eventually you get to a point in your career where you have to make a really key decision. And that is regarding the future of the company. Are we going to continue growing? Because what we eventually discovered is that we had become the largest firm in the D.C. area. We were operating out of a single office in Fairfax, Virginia, and we were beginning to get requests for help from people around the country because of my activities in, in media were our, and activities in financial education. Word was spreading. People were hearing about us, and we were getting phone calls from all over the U.S. Well, how do we serve people who are not in the D.C. area? So we had to make a decision. Are we willing to serve people outside the market? And if so, that means we have to establish offices outside the market. We need to establish local presence. Well, that's something new and different. We've never done that before. You know, Gene and I are in the office all the time, every day. Our our fingerprints are on everything. And to open an office where we're not physically there, is that going to work? Can we preserve our culture? Can we maintain the client experience if we're not physically present? That was a big decision to make. The second decision was, If we are going to do that, how do we pay for it? And that's when we made the decision that we needed to turn to outside help. And that meant outside capital for two reasons. One, the amount of money associated with the endeavor of of a national expansion. And second, I needed someone who had experience in opening offices around the country and managing them remotely. So we went searching for a partner and I was very fortunate to find George Ball. George was the CEO of Sanders Morris Harris, an investment bank out of Houston. George's career, though, spanned far longer than that. Prior to being the CEO of SMH, George was the CEO of EF Hutton, and he was also the chairman of Prudential. George is one of the titans of Wall Street. He's been on Wall Street for 70 years. George is now in his late 80s, and he is one of the titans of, of the financial services industry whose record goes back forever. He's the guy who saved Chrysler back in the 70s when Lee Iacocca was facing the calamitous situation there and and the oil crisis of the 70s. And so with George's help, we were able to obtain the capital that we needed to grow and with George's guidance, learn how to grow and expand multi-office operation around the country. One interesting thing is that 
SMH, Sanders Morris Harris, was a publicly traded company when they acquired an interest in my company. So we ended up doing a Pac-Man defense. We ended up be taking control of SMH, and I became the CEO with George, the co-CEO of SMH. We rebranded the company, the Edelman Financial Group, and I therefore became the first publicly traded financial advisor in the country, the stock traded on NASDAQ. And we owned dozens of businesses in the financial services sector, sports management teams, broker dealers, insurance companies, private wealth managers. We had we owned RIAs and broker dealers. We owned a couple of dozen businesses, investment management firms in the real estate sector and, and others. Being a publicly traded company in the 1980s, I quickly, and, and 1990s, I should say, and into the 2000s, I, I quickly realized that I hated being a public company CEO. <laughs> the, the, the hassles of being a public company CEO with, with Sarbanes-Oxley and quarterly reporting requirements to stock market analysts was very distracting, didn't really serve the business any good, wasn't really helping clients. And so, let's see, I'm getting my math. In 2009, we took the company private. My memory serves right. And so you um, bought all the stocks back? Like, what does yeah, that mean? We, we, yeah, we, we hooked up with another private equity firm, Lee Equity. And we did a stock buyback and we purchased all the public shares and we, we went back to being a private company. We then did another transaction. I think that was 2012. I might be getting my dates wrong, but we, we took the company private. And, and then we did another transaction with Hellman and Friedman, one of the largest private equity firms where they largely bought out Lee Equity. And we have all done, all told, I've done six transactions now. I've essentially sold the company six times. We have done a series of transactions that have allowed the company to grow, to increase our, our footprint, increase the services that we're providing to clients and the number of that we're serving. And there will be a seventh transaction. We did our most recent transaction in May of 20, May of 22, I'm sorry, May of 21, just last year, year and a half ago, where we brought in Warburg Pincus, another major private equity firm. And, and I stepped aside as CEO of the business. I'm now on the board. I'm not really involved in the firm's day-to-day. -day. I left the company at the end of 21, and I'm focusing on my new enterprises. I've started three other new companies, and I'm engaged in a variety of other business activities. My media company still doing, I took my radio show, turned it into a daily podcast, The Truth About Your Future, which is all focused on longevity, retirement security, exponential technologies, crypto, and health and wellness. My wife does her own podcast on health and wellness now as well. We are doing uh, a lot of crypto education through my company, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, DAC-FP, which is focused on teaching investors and advisors about crypto and how to incorporate it into a diversified portfolio. I have an Alzheimer's research company where we're working on technologies in the fight against Alzheimer's. I'm operating my family office for my own personal investments in technology and, and a lot of philanthropic activities, predominantly in Alzheimer's and with our alma mater, Rowan University, where we have provided the funding for the Edelman Planetarium, the Edelman Fossil Park, and the Edelman College for Communication and Creative Arts, where we just had commencement last week where I was the keynote speaker. So we're busy as ever because entrepreneurship, but once it's in your blood, it never leaves. This is really cool because you're, you're going full spectrum for me. So each one of those transactions, I imagine your wealth changed. It either went down or went up, right? You, you put money out to buy stocks back or like you got checks. Do you remember when you got the biggest one, the check, the biggest check? You remember oh, that? Each, each 
Sure. Each transaction has been larger than the one before it. The We were always very profitable and we've always had an extremely high CAGR or compound annual growth rate. And our growth prospects have always been very strong. And so we've always commanded a very high premium for the value of our business. And as our company grew, we have done deals for more and more value. And we've always generated a very high check for the sale of the portion of the business that we've chosen to sell. Most recently in 21, we sold a little less than a third of the business. The company was valued at $7.2 billion. And so each of the transactions generated a significant amount of income for, for Gene and me and also for the entire staff and planners. Gene and I have always been very careful to share our reward with our employees, our, our advisors, our managers, our staff, because the success of the business is all due to them. And so we've always been very careful to share uh, the success and reward with them. And it's been really wonderful to watch their lives improve and their ability to save money and buy homes and cars and send kids to college and care for mom and dad with the results of the success from their hard work in the business. And But you, you do get to the point, Jerome, where the money you know does get so large that it gets rather silly. And it's kind of hard to contemplate, you know, that you're dealing with this kind of wealth, which was never really the goal or intent when we started, or certainly not the expectation. And that's why we're spending so much of our energy and efforts on philanthropy and solving some of the nation's biggest problems, because that's really what the purpose of money is for, is to make the lives better for the people around you. You're making the point for me. So how'd you feel when you got the first one or the last one, it's totally up to you. Like, what'd you think? Because I think everybody, the majority of people I know, and it's not their fault, right? They're chasing financial freedom, right? That's the whole American dream. You talked about it. Hey, that's what I was supposed to do. I got a job. But after chasing that, they finally get the goal and they think that the check fixes it. Yeah. Whatever they were chasing, it did does. it fix anything? Yeah. No, no, it never does. And those who chase the dollar, when I come up, you know, I've done a lot of training and consulting for advisors over the years and, and other entrepreneurs and, and business owners in all kinds of fields, because I'm one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the country. And so we've done a lot of that work. And I've often found that people, there are two kinds of people in the world of entrepreneurship. There are those who have a passion for what it is they're doing. They've got a widget that they are convinced is better than anybody else's widget. And they have a real passion for getting it into the marketplace. And they're going to do whatever it takes to achieve that goal. And then there's a group of entrepreneurs who have a widget that they think will make them rich quick. That group, the people who are in it for the money, who think they're going to get rich quick, almost never succeed. And the reason that they fail is because they discover that the sacrifices, the challenges, the risks, the workload, the uncertainties, the anxieties, the disruptions to family and friends and culture are so great that they're not willing to take the sacrifice and they fail because they don't, they aren't willing. I've had a guy say to me, I'm going to give it all I've got. I'm like, dude, that might not be enough. You might need to give it all it takes. And all it takes might be more than all you've got. And, and if you don't have the support of your spouse and your children and your parents and your siblings and your best friends who will not complain when you miss a meal or miss an, an event. Gene and I were lucky because we worked together building the business. You know, Gene, 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 they say out in the brain of the business, but Gene was the soul. And it, it is Gene who was really the glue that kept everything together. And because we worked together in the business day to day, we were able to build it together and strengthen our relationships together. And as a result of all of that, we were able to do it in a very enjoyable way. And it wasn't about the money. And I remember 
we, we did set ourselves a goal. We, we, we basically took every dollar we earned, every revenue we generated, and we plotted back into the business. And we did that forever. And I finally said to Gene, I have a goal. One month, Gene took care of the books. She handled all the accounting and finances and payroll and commissions and client checks and everything else. And I said, Gene, one day you're going to tell me at the end of the month, we have $5,000 in the bank that we have not spent. And when there's $5,000 in the bank, you and I are going to the mall and we're not leaving the mall until we spend the money. We're going to, we're going to splurge and we're going to reward ourselves for all of this sacrifice all these years. Well, the day finally came and one day there was five grand in the bank and I was like, that's it. Okay. We're going to the mall. And off we went. And it was so much fun. It was so exciting. We walked around that mall for three hours and the only thing we bought was an ice cream cone. It was, we couldn't bring ourselves, we couldn't do it. We, we couldn't spend the money. We, we, we realized it would take in so much work and so much sacrifice to end up with $5,000 in the bank that we said, we're not squandering this money. It can't be done. If the only thing we can do with this money is put it back in the business, because that's why we built it in the first place. And so eventually you get to the point where you're able to have some toys and over the years, we've adopted all the toys and we've got them. And, you know, we, we had the, the new wealth routine and it's fun. And we shared all of it with our, with our advisors and our senior staff as best we could. And we've been very generous with employees for our 10th anniversary. We took the entire company and all of their spouses and all of their children to Disney World for four days. We did it again on our 25th anniversary. Every employee in the company on their 10th anniversary gets a Rolex. Every six years, every employee gets a four-week sabbatical, paid time off for them to go do whatever they want. We used to shut down their email and their voicemail, prohibiting them to contact the company in any way during the four weeks. We said, if you contact us during the company, during these four-week sabbatical, you're fired. You must not contact us. This is for you to go do what you want to do with your family. It's a re recognition that you've been working hard for six years. You're burning out. You need to relax, enjoy yourself, you do whatever you want. And people did remarkable things. Some would redo their houses. Some would go on family trips. Some would go on around the world cruises. Some would just reconnect with themselves. Some would go back to school. Some would learn a new hobby or skill. And they would all come back and do a report to the company on what they did on their sabbatical. And everybody would just love this and envision and dream of what their sabbatical would be like. And so we just do a lot of things to recognize and applaud and congratulate and thank our staff for doing what they do because they're the ones who deliver to our clients the services that our clients are asking for. And that's what we think really, really matters. So it wasn't about Gene and me, you know, throwing away $5,000 on a mall spray. It was about what can we do to put our resources that we've been, we've been blessed with having to best use for the benefit of others. And it's been a fun journey. It's interesting. So you figured out the fulfillment piece. I think people are chasing the financial freedom. They get there and then they ask three questions. What was it all for? Is this really it? And then what now? It seems like you already had that answer before you got there. And one of the benefits of my business, Jerome, has enabled me to do that. You're absolutely right. Too often, see, the benefit I have in my business is that I was counseling clients who were usually much older than me. You know, these clients are typically in their 50s or 60s or 70s, and they've reached the pinnacle of their lives financially. They're, they're retiring out of their careers. They're cashing out their 401ks. They're getting inheritances from their moms and dads who've died. And they now are facing what you've just said. 
And I, in my 30s, 40s, 50s, watching these people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, I was able to learn from their experiences because I was intimately involved in their lives. And I was able to say, wow, I will one day be them. And if I'm watching them go through this struggle, they're saying, what was it all worth? Was this worth it? Did I achieve fulfillment? Am I happy where I'm at? I built my life based on my career, but my career is over. What's left? Now all I've got is TV and Oprah. And isn't there more to life than this? Where's my fulfillment? My friends are all scattered all over the country. They've all moved to Florida or to Phoenix. My my friends are dying. My friends are, are having health issues. My friends are divorcing. My friends are having financial problems of their own. They're struggling with their own parents, their own children. Uh, what's my life going to be like now? I was watching my clients go through this, and that allowed Gene and me to sit back saying, we need to look at what's important to us so that when we get to that age, we're not going to be as aimless as these folks sadly are. And that's the focus of my podcast today, Longevity. We are now in a situation where most of us have a high degree of affluence. There's a higher degree of affluence in America than at any point in American history. Even low-income Americans have higher incomes than a hundred years ago wealthy people had. You know, today everybody's got indoor plumbing and indoor heating. Everybody's, you know, I hate to say it this way and don't take it the wrong way. Please take it the way I intend it. Poor people shouldn't be fat. If you're poor, it means you have no money and that means you should be skinny out of hunger. Go look at poor people in Africa that you see the ribs on their bodies because they have no money. They have no food. They're truly poor, living on $1.20 a day, according to the United Nations. In America, poor people are fat. Why? Because they do have enough money to go buy food through the SNAP program and other federal and state services and other resources people have, even minimum wage people. They're not eating well. They're not eating right. Their lives are, are not what they ought to be. That's for sure. But we're living better today than at any other time. And that means we're getting to a point by the time we're in our 60s and our 70s, if the only thing we've got is the financial, what about the personal fulfillment? What about our relationships? What about our inner journey? What about our community connection? Too often, we're not spending a lot of time with all of that. And now that we're living longer than ever, people, when you and I were born, in fact, let's go back to 1900. People don't even know this. In 1900, Life expectancy in the U.S. was 47. Today, it's 86. And if you're alive in 2030, you're likely going to live to age 100. If you're going to retire in your 60s or 70s and have 35 years to go before you're dead, what are you going to do with those 35 years? Gene and I knew by virtue of looking at the experiences of our older clients who are decades ahead of us, that we were on that path. We were on that trail. And we said to ourselves, one day, it's inevitable we're going to leave Edelman Financial. Now, the choice may be voluntary. Maybe we'll choose the timing. Maybe we'll choose the date and the nature of the exit, but maybe not. Maybe it'll be a health crisis. Maybe it'll be a business decision. Our private equity partners might throw us out. Maybe it'll be changes in the business environment. Who knows what? Something one day will cause Gene and I to leave Edelman Financial. Are we going to walk into a void or will will we be walking into simply the next chapter? And that's what we began building Way back seven years ago, the beginning of our exit, when we did our deal with Hellman and Friedman in 2016, we laid down the path for our eventual exit from Edelman Financial way back when, because we knew it was eventually going to occur. And what we didn't want was our exit to be disruptive to the company, to the staff, or to the clients, because we had an obligation and responsibility for them. So that's been our journey, Jerome, and you're absolutely right. Most successful people don't think much about what's next. What got you successful 
is got nothing to do with what you're going to do with your life after you change to your next chapter. And most people are not focusing on how to prepare for that next chapter. And that's now what I do in my new life is helping people look at that. The work you do is so profoundly important because you're addressing this issue in a way I've really not seen others do. And I really applaud you for that. Thank you. So you avoided the founder exit paradox because you've created a plan for that and you've got the other things going and you're already working on fulfillment. And so that in and of itself puts you in a place where you are not lost is what I'll call it. Right. And so when we talk about the exit paradox, we're talking about when you have that existential crisis, the feelings of the existential crisis, right? You're questioning life, you're questioning the purpose and but it's triggered by a major, major accomplishment, right? Yeah. It's not. But it, Go ahead. It, you're right. It, it's knowing it's coming has been helpful in our efforts to prepare, but still nothing truly prepares you. You know, it's the same thing we all experience with death. You know, when you have a parent who's dying and you watch them dying in front of you over a long period from a long illness or uh, a spouse or a, or a college friend uh, or sibling, you know the death is coming. But nevertheless, when it occurs, being prepared, there was no such thing. You're still not prepared. It's devastating. And so to some degree, although Gene and I knew that our exit from Edelman Financial would one day occur, when it finally did, it was nevertheless devastating because this was our life for 30 plus years. This was who we wrapped ourselves in with who we were. And, and it meant the end of many relationships. It meant the end of commonality of people we had things that we did on a daily basis with our, our friends in, in the business and colleagues in the industry, those relationships altered and they're still in the game. They're still doing it, but we're not, or we're doing it in different ways. And so there is always that, that challenge. We made it easier, more palatable, more tolerable because we didn't have the pure void. It dramatically improved. It's kind of like saying you're driving a car, you're going to hit the brick wall. You can't stop it. There's nothing you can do about it, but at least you can put on a seatbelt. At least you can apply the brakes so that when you do hit the wall, it's not as big a bash as it otherwise would have been. And so the preparation was of tremendous help, but I don't want to mislead anybody. It's still, it is still a challenge and it's a transition, even though it's been a year and a half, it's still a transition Gene and I continue to go through. Just as, you know, we lost a very dear friend of ours a few years ago, we'll never get over it. When you lose a parent, you'll never get over it. Sometimes in some ways it can get easier, but in other occasions it just hits you in the head and you're right back where you were the day of the funeral. And so that's life. That's, that's all part of it. And grief is all part of the process as well. And we need to acknowledge all of this and we need to turn to each other and rely on support and be communicative about it because that helps you get through it. And you need to recognize you're not alone, that this is a natural part of the evolution. And if you manage it effectively and correctly, it can be productive and proactive, leading you so that your next chapter is more fun, more exciting, more enriching, more enjoyable, so that you should be happier in your 70s and 80s than you ever were in your 40s and 50s. And I'm convinced that that will be our future. And we're determined to help as many other people achieve that as possible. Rick, phenomenal, phenomenal story, man. Thank you so much for sharing it. I've been searching for it. I couldn't find it anywhere, but I think you shared it with us, my brother. And I'm extremely grateful because I think you're blazing a trail as you did back in the 80s when you first set up the company to help people see what's possible for them. My closing question, the one I ask everybody is, who else should we have on the show? There's When you're playing in rare air, you know other people that are there and we'd love an opportunity to 
bring more stories like yours to the listeners? Well, one of the greatest experts in this field, a very dear friend of mine is Ken Dykwald. Ken is the founder and CEO of AgeWave. He is widely regarded as the world's leading expert on the study of aging and is immersed deeply into this. He's written 19 books and he is mesmerizing. He's a gerontologist and psychologist and leading the path, to helping people understand the environment that we are finding ourselves in thanks to this new long level of longevity. So I would strongly, I'll, when we get offline, I'll connect you with Ken. You, you'll love talking to him. Outstanding. Thank you so much. And to the listeners, you heard it from Rick. This is what you need to be prepared for after you spend so long building what you've been working on. You need to focus on next and then what's next. And so if you'd like to have a conversation about how we can help you do that, shoot me an email at jerome at jeromemyers.co. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to